Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health-monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinarian-developed and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. The staff of Tales to Terrify has been prepping up for the transitioning me out of the role of host and back to narrator where I started with this show. After about four years of doing the show, I'm coming up on a period in my life where I'm about to wrap up my long overdue bachelor's degree, and it'll be the hardest part of the program. I decided to leave this role on the show on my own terms versus getting bogged down with schoolwork and then podcast suffering, then leaving when things are a mess, which is what I believe would have happened. So this sort of special bit of audio I decided to put in separately because... Well, you may not want to hear it, and you can skip it. No hard feelings. I think that what this can be best understood is a bit of a retrospective about podcasting. I probably won't linger too much on horror or fiction. Way back in the beginning, one of the choices that was made by Tony and Larry was to put in time markers in the show notes for when different parts of the show would begin. There were two big reasons for this. One is that if you wanted to go back and listen to a particular story, you'd know the timestamp. The other is that if you wanted to skip part of the show, even Larry or my hosting stuff, you could. Not all listeners care about what I have to say, and that's fine. You're just here for the stories. Larry's passing had an impact on me that goes beyond the show. One of the really tricky parts for me was when I agreed to take up the hosting position at a time where I was the only member of the staff. There were two problems. First, Larry was well-connected. Larry knew a lot of people and did a wonderful job of maintaining those relationships. I was not as well-connected to the fiction community, so he had established an enormous collection of stories set to be narrated and aired, and despite the efforts of editors before me, there was still a large swath of the stories that the order in which they'd been narrated or aired was in his head and nowhere else. As a result... When it was time for me to pick up the pieces, pieces they were. During the following months, I'd work with new editors on a workflow that would understand the bus factor. I wanted to be replaceable. If I were to suddenly have to leave the show, I've also kept that in mind in my professional life, since all team-based projects should have its members be replaceable, if need be. The second thing uh, that Larry was better at was having a bit of a character on the podcast. Maybe character is too strong of a term. He had an altered persona for the podcast. He did a wonderful job of setting the tone for the show by having you believe he was a spooky man inviting you into a library for a reading of a scary story. I always imagine the nook as how I imagine the protagonist and pose the raven. After Larry's passing, 
I tried to stick with that setting and receive some gentle feedback that it came off as weird. So as some of you may remember, I relocated to the cabin and had that going for a while, but it just didn't feel natural for me. I asked a few listeners about it, and some thought it was fine, and some did admit it sounded stilted. But none of them really cared whether or not that was done at all, so I dropped it. I've mentioned before about how the staff of Tales to Terrify will occasionally revisit the idea of our no-frills presentation of the entire episode, and I think that was also a part of that mindset. You're here to listen to some stories first. Not for me. The warm-up act. There is part of me that hopes that Drew will take the hosting spot back to a fictional place to set the stage for what will come, and another part of me that wonders if that is just us being silly. My audition for narrator was a selection from McCarthy's The Road, which I recorded on an iPhone and then sent in, which was immediately rejected because of the poor audio quality. That was my first dip into the podcasting waters, and was then made to realize that equipment does matter. I'd like to remark to anyone who may be thinking of making a podcast that equipment does matter, but not that much. I have a friend who is a professional sound engineer and has a tremendous amount of expensive sound equipment. I bugged him for months, looking for new pieces of equipment to set up my audio quality, and eventually he listened to an episode and said, It sounds fine. I have a Blue Yeti microphone with a pop filter that I've used for years and at some point added some sound dampening material behind the microphone. Otherwise, the clothing in my wife's closet soaks up most of the rest. I record on an old MacBook Air that I can take into the closet with me. I could also edit on it if I felt so inclined, but I then take that to a much newer and larger screened iMac to do any sort of cutting out of coughs, misspeaks, or swearing at cats. If we were to take it to the This American Life level, yeah, we'd probably need to put a few more bucks into equipment for outfitting a studio. But uh, for what we do, it's fine. And for what you may want to do, don't break, don't break your bank. Also, there were quite a few things that I learned about audio capture while being a narrator, such as exactly how loud a lawnmower, weed eater, or motorcycle has to be to my ears before my microphone will pick it up from outside. Also, warning anyone that you live with that you'll be recording and asking them to be quiet for a bit. Another is expecting the possibility that the recording will be rejected. One of the singularly most frustrating narrations that I had was also my longest. Cher Eves had asked me to narrate Algernon Blackwood's The Willows, which would eventually be broken up into multiple parts and aired in different episodes. It was a very long read, and after I completed that long read, edited out all of my mistakes and sent it on to the show, Larry rejected it because I pronounced the name of the river in it at least three different ways. And as a result, I had to re-record big chunks of that thing. I was not happy about that, and for those of you who have been with the show for quite some time, Know that I'm well known for screwing up our authors' and narrators' names, mandating a bit of an apology the following week. I think another chapter in the Tales to Terrify story that I'd like to remark on is the Hugo Awards debacle. For those of you who joined our listening audience after that happened, the short version of it is, is that there is a group of fiction fans who feel that conservative voices have been shut out of sci-fi, fantasy, and horror. So they've attempted to either vote in their people for the Hugo Awards or poison the well with illegitimate candidates. One of those years, we were either 
one of their people or an illegitimate candidate. I'm not sure which they considered us, since we weren't notified by either of those groups that this would be happening. Tales to Terrify staff was well supported by the larger community of authors who felt that this was an undeserved slight. Even George R. R. Martin took a break from working on The Winds of Winter to show a bit of support. Now, I did get a bit of flack, because although I was not happy to find myself in the middle of something that I didn't feel that I should be in the middle of, I did concede that the group who says that conservative voices were being shut out were correct. Personally, I think that a good story is told by a good author, regardless of their personal convictions about things. A creator's beliefs have to be absolutely abhorrent before it'll interfere with my ability to enjoy their work at all. The flack that I took was from people who understood my statements to mean that I was sympathetic to the entire mission of those groups, which also included anti-diversity motives, which is abhorrent to me. Shutting Shutting anyone out of their community of ideas based on their identity is an immoral thing. To sum things up, if an author wants their heroes to be all-white, heterosexual, nominally Christian males, that's fine with me. But to demand it of others? Nah, get out of here. We were happy to receive a parsec for Ron Newton's reading of Justin Cawthorn's Graves way back in episode 172, so that was nice. I think that I just have two more things to discuss before I sign off. The first is money. Before Tales to Terrify moved to ACAST, you'll recall that every couple of months I had to sound the alarm. Tony let me know that we were dipping dry on funds and there was a high probability that would be it for Tales to Terrify or the entire District of Wonders. I hated doing that. I really did. And I was mostly happy when we were moved to ACAST. I did have two different listeners that claimed that I was a liar that no, the podcast wasn't constantly running out of money, and I was just trying to panic listeners into opening their wallets. You know, to be fair, Tony has never made me privy to the exact amounts in the ledgers. That's fine. But to the best of my ability to observe, we can. We came real close to pulling the plug on a couple of occasions, and I think there was a bit of a feeling in the air of, do we want to have to keep begging people for money constantly just to get a few more miles down the road? ACAST was a nice move because although I did not want to have to look forward to recording advertising pieces for sponsors, I'd happily prefer it over groveling for dollars, pounds, yen, RMB, or whatever. I believe that at some point in the past, I pointed out that if every single Tales to Terrify listener contributed a single American dollar every month, that's 25 cents an episode, that all of the district's money woes and goals that required funding would likely be resolved by the end of the first month and certainly by the end of the second. I mean it. It's true. Because of my involvement with getting revenue in, it has really made me reevaluate about the if and when of ignoring another podcast pledge drive. I listen to a good number of podcasts, and I think that I'd spent years thinking that someone else will put in some money so I don't have to. Now, I'm more aware that it's actually unlikely that someone else will. As of this recording, the District of Wonders Patreon has 430 patrons. If we are to presume that every single one of those patrons are Tales of Terrify listeners, that means that well under a single percent of all of our listeners are contributing any money. If you're one of those people that makes direct contributions through PayPal or actually now Bitcoin, no disrespect, but I'll, I'll count what I can count. 
Those patrons are the financial bedrock of the entire district, and we pray to whatever deities look over the work of marketing and hope that they'll think that Tales of Terrify's listeners may be interested in a certain product or service. My favorite advertising campaign to be part of was HelloFresh because they set me up with some of their product, which constitutes the majority of my compensation for my time on staff. I didn't expect the other outfits to send me on a cruise or set me up with a wedding, but it was nice to get that product from HelloFresh. So, the next time you hear Drew or Tony or anyone saying that we're in dire straits and we need money, it's a fact. As a result of all of this, I've been much better at contributing funds to other creative efforts that I haven't had to pay for, including other podcasts, and just this week I sent $5 to Wikipedia. You should as well. Speaking to others who may remotely collaborate on a project like this, please dump Dropbox. It's incredibly expensive. Get an Amazon S3 account and use it. It's pennies on the dollar compared to Dropbox. The second and final thought is one that I don't know if I felt a place on the show to ever really even touch on this. But one of the weird things that I did not expect when I said to Tony, yes, let's carry this podcast on into the future would be the fame. Yes, I said fame. Not only did I get a small measure of the stuff, I don't think that I fully understood what fame meant before I had some of it. On the surface, fame just means you're well known for something. But there is another quality to it that may be difficult to articulate. I think that I might say that there not only do people who are strangers assume a degree of familiarity with you, they also make presumptions about your efforts and endeavors. As an unfortunate example that I may have mentioned in an episode far in the past, immediately following Larry's sad passing and me agreeing to continue on as the host, a certain listener took to Facebook, Twitter, and the iTunes podcast review site to give negative feedback about the new host. And remember, that's, that's me. She also emailed the podcast asking that I be replaced because of how terrible of a host I am. This is a bit of the fame that I was talking about. The listener seemed to think that we have an office with a staff, maybe an intern to go down to Starbucks and buy expensive coffees for us. She had written a complaint about a single staff member when the staff only had a single member. She seemingly unknowingly wrote to the host to complain about the host. I got a bit shook up about that, took it to Tony, and he, being more experienced at this sort of interaction, advised me something to the effect of me telling her to, well, fuck off. I think that I toned it down um, with a bit of snark, uh, that I wish that I could bring back my dead friend, have him back in place, but that wasn't really an option. I've had a few times that I've mentioned specific listeners by name on the air and received some astounded emails in response. I just want to let you know that hearing your name on air in an episode is likely much, much easier than having done, say, Radiolab. We're three East Coast guys from the United States and one Canadian who have never met and work out of a cloud share in a Slack chat room. During this time, I also happen to have dinner with Patrick Roan, of formerly of the Minimal Mac podcast and the Minimal blog, and had a bit of a starstruck anxiety in the run-up to the dinner, only to find out that he was just another guy who happens to have some good ideas that he committed to words. My point in all of that is that in those moments where I feel like someone is making me out to be more than I see myself, I'm both a tad weirded out by that, but also flattered and humbled. 
Tales to Terrify has become something much larger than I'd expected it would have been four and a half years ago. A bit part of the thanks for that is to all of you listeners who have shared our efforts on social media or email or word of mouth with others who have tried us on for size and found it to be a good fit. But I also have to thank all of the editors that I've worked with, Philip Oldham and Rock Banner, Seth Williams and Drew Sebastini, and most of all, Scott Silk, who has worked with me the longest, and he entered into staff with force at a time that I was considering throwing in the towel because of how much work the show had become, competing with real-life responsibilities. There has been at least one season in the show's history where I can say that Scott Silk was definitely more important to the operation and continuation than I was. So thanks again to Scott Silk for that. Thank you all for your years of listening to my voice. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 